This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat. Hello from Tel Aviv. Welcome to yet another episode of Tau Unbound. I'm Ido Aharoni, your host, and it is my pleasure to have here with us in the studio Professor Leah Rosen, Laura Rosen in English. In Hebrew, we call you Leah, but in English, it's Laura. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, and I, w- I want to make sure that I get your impressive title correctly. So, uh, Professor Laura Rosen, she's the chair of... of the Department of Health Promotion at the School of Public Health, the Faculty of Medicine at Tel Aviv University. And obviously, we will talk about health promotion. What is the meaning of health promotion? What is it, public health? How can we promote it? What is being done by governments, by corporations to promote public health? But before we get to talk all about those things, we would like to hear about your own personal story. I know that you moved to Israel in 1986 from the United States. I know that there's a Rutgers component in your biography, right? And I, I don't know if you know that, but Rutgers has a special relationship with Tel Aviv. Right. Um, it's part of a New Jersey-Israel um, connection. So tell us your story. Well, at Rutgers, I studied mathematics. because I liked mathematics and I was good at it. And in history, I couldn't have managed because I couldn't. Are you I from New Jersey? I'm from, I grew up in New Jersey, yes. What part of New Jersey? Um, I grew up in Middlesex. Middlesex. Before that, we were in East Patterson. Wow, East Patterson. Way wow, back. very interesting. Yeah. Patterson today, you won't find too many Jews there. Um, it's, a, it's a very different place than it used to be. But so are, you know, the rest of the places like Newark and Jersey City and so on. Well, in Middlesex, there really weren't very many Jews, and there still aren't. Yes. So you Minority. grew up in New Jersey. You went to Rutgers. Actually, I was in Delaware before that, but also New Jersey. Um, yes, I went to Rutgers. I studied mathematics. And when I was finishing my degree, I was trying to figure out what to do next. And I saw this poster for biostatistics on the wall, and I thought, hmm, I really like biology, and I really like statistics. And I... got into Harvard School of Public Health, and I studied biostatistics at the Harvard School of Public Health. Now, what is and biostatistics? Biostatistics is basically applying statistics to biological and medical and health kinds of problems. So it's a broad field. And um, I worked as a biostatistician for many years, also before I came here and after I came here, but always from the public health kind of aspect to the extent possible. Um, and at one point I realized it was time to do the doctorate that I had put off because I wanted to have my kids when I was still young. And I knew that what I really wanted to study was tobacco because I had watched my father smoke. I was exposed to my father's smoke when I was growing up. And we always knew that he was going to die from it. And he kept doing it anyway. Um, and we loved him very much and didn't want him to, but he was heavily addicted. Um, and I always knew I wanted to study tobacco control, but for my doctorate, I did kids and illness and kids and handwashing and preventing illness in little kids. Because by then I had three little kids myself and they were always sick. And also I was pregnant with another one. So the question was, how do you prevent this illness in little kids, which seemed to me to be far more frequent here in Israel than in the states where I had grown up and everybody was healthy all the time. Um, but they didn't send their kids to preschool when they were, you know, really tiny. So wait, wait, this is interesting. You felt that people were healthier in the states than here? I felt like kids were way healthier. 
I, you know, barely knew people who had had pneumonia when I got to this country. In Israel, every other day you hear about somebody with pneumonia. It was very common. At that time, um, some of the um, 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 uh, diseases were 10 times as common. Shigella, Salmonella were 10 times as common here as they were in the States. And the reason, I don't obviously... Know if it's still true because I'm not in the field anymore. And, and the reason at the time was just because there was no procedure. Yeah, the reason, but what I did know was that no one was, nobody had soap in the kindergartens and in the preschools where my kids were, and the hygiene was not great. And so I decided to do my doctorate on the topic of preventing um, infection in children via hygiene in the preschool. And this you did here in Israel? At the Hebrew University. At the Hebrew University. Yes. So, yes. so yes. the reason you moved was to pursue your PhD, or you just moved for other no, reasons? No, we moved because we're Zionists. Okay, we so moved you moved because our, you wanted with, to live here. Yes, and we moved with our infant son, who just yesterday went to Philadelphia for a year for a postdoc for his wife. Wow, so yes. your, your children continue <laughs> in the same tradition of yeah, science and yes, research. Yes, That's terrific. Yes, so um, I did the doctorate. It was fascinating. It was really a, a wonderful thing. I had wonderful advisors. Um, and But I realized I really wanted to be in the field of tobacco because, as I said, I had watched my father smoke all his life. Um, I also watched him die of tobacco. It's a terrible death to die of tobacco. Terrible death. And I decided I wanted to do what I could to prevent smoking at the population level in public health we talk about. Sometimes we talk about individuals. Very often we talk about how can we change those levers at the population level to reduce and eliminate smoking in the population. And that's really what I've been working on since I came to Tel Aviv University in 2006. But when you um, became engaged with the issue of uh, tobacco, it was when? Late, late well, 80s? When I first became engaged with the, with the issue of tobacco was when I was five and my father was a smoker and we knew he shouldn't be. And I started nudging him to stop smoking. Um, and actually, after this same son was born, he did stop smoking. Um, he didn't make it to see my son bar mitzvah. Um, and uh, there's an awful lot we can do. It, I personally think it should, should just be outlawed. I mean, it kills half of its users if used as intended. Um, and you see the destruction all around in many, many, many families. So, so in many ways, what I'm trying to, to get here is uh, you were a pioneer in Israel in this area. I'm assuming. So when I started, there were people who were working in tobacco control. There was nobody working full-time in tobacco control research. And I had the opportunity to be the first person in Israel to be full-time, as far as I know, in tobacco control research and spend my time building the evidence base for healthy policy, figuring out what can be effective at preventing smoking, helping people quit, and especially preventing exposure to secondhand smoke, which is really my main focus of attention. And I what we really see is that as smoke-free laws become become part of um, a part of the policies in different governments, we see smoking goes down. We see exposure to secondhand smoke goes down. We see more people stop smoking in the home. The, you know, the tobacco industries always say, well, you can't you can't prevent smoking in bars and pubs or restaurants because if you do, people will go back and smoke more on the home on their kids, and that's even worse. And it's not true. The opposite happens. Smoking becomes more denormalized as people understand that it affects not just them, but it affects the other person. We've done lots of interviews now, with lots on, of people. On a 
when you look at the at the system as a whole, right? So there are, I guess, several dimensions. One is affecting policy. Right. Um, tell us about your experience in the field, not just in Israel, in other countries. I'm interested in comparing Israel to other countries. Israel as a system, affecting policy. Tell us about that. So. Tobacco control in Israel actually was very advanced. We were pioneers in 1983 when we institute, instituted national legislation against smoking in buses and trains and in theaters um, and in pharmacies and all kinds of places. We were one of the first countries in the world to do that. You know, and I, I, I wasn't here at the time, but I heard stories about bus drivers just stopping their buses until people stopped smoking. And now no one smokes in the buses. No one would even consider it. In 1998, we were again pioneers in the world. We were the first country in the world to have national legislation for smoke-free skies. That is no smoking on incoming or exiting um, flights. And anybody who is, I don't know, whatever age and who flew before that understands what it was to fly with people smoking because usually they were like these two rows that were smoking rows, but wherever you are, you were affected, right? And it was a cloud of smoke. We were the first country in the world to protect people on, our, on flights. And that was due to the efforts of um, the lawyer Amos Hausner, um, who took the issue to the Supreme Court in 1996. And in 1998, they came to a settlement with all the companies. So that, that was our glorious past. Well, well, and then we continued to have very reasonable tobacco control laws, and we continued expanding them. And it kind of came to a stop about a decade ago. Things kind of really slowed down a lot for various reasons. Um, and then they perked up again in 2018. We had great legislation passed. We, we have plain packaging in stores that is none of those glittery, pretty purple, you know, packages that really attract the smokers to smoke. No, they're all this really ugly color and they all look the same. Um, unfortunately, we have poor enforcement of our laws, if we have any enforcement of our laws. We have, we have great laws about marketing, although, like I said, in my opinion, it should be illegal to sell tobacco commercially. No question about it. And there are people, by the way, at the, there's, an, there's, a, there's a tobacco control center at, in um, Hopkins, and they're working on the end of commercial sales of tobacco products. And I think we should adopt that too. As, that would be is great. there any country in the world that uh, adopted? Um, no sales rules? policy, not yet, but other countries have have really instituted very serious plans, much more so than we which, have. Which countries are New the most Zealand, advanced? New Zealand, New Zealand is Zealand. fantastic. Canada is very good. They have warnings. They have over 120 countries in Europe have warnings on, not in Europe, but around the world, have um, graphic warnings on cigarettes, cigarette packages, those really ugly warnings. And that actually is on the agenda right now in the Knesset. I hope it will pass. I think it passed its first reading, but maybe it was in committee. I'm not sure about that. Um, but there's all kinds of other things that other countries have done, like seriously limit where people can buy tobacco and when they can buy tobacco. So that they can't just go to the Mancolid around the corner and pick up cigarettes whenever they want. No, they're not there, which means they're also not drawing youth into using them. Right. By the way, I just had a, um, uh, just came from Canada and I was, um, I met with uh, an Israeli uh, researcher there. His name is Professor Yaron Finkelstein, who studied the impact of the legalization of cannabis on mental health and suicide and oh, yeah. 
where he discovered some horrific correlations between the legalization of cannabis and, uh, and what happened to mental health of, of Canadians, especially in Ontario. In Quebec, it's a different story because they did not legalize edibles the same way they did in Ontario. And those edibles apparently are really, really damaging. So we spoke about the policy. But, but part, of, part of cannabis is what happens to the user, but if they're smoking it, it's also what happens to the bystander. Right. Because that has psychotropic effects. Collateral damage. Terrible. Yeah. So we spoke about the affecting policy, and, and I'm, I'm so pleased to hear from you that Israel, Israel is actually uh, but we're not very advanced. In, but we're not enforcing things. We need to be enforcing things, and we haven't been able to bring down our smoking rate in, in over a decade, and that's different from the U.S. That's down to 11.5%. We're over 20%. Canada has gone down. The U.K. has gone down. We're stuck. We need to be doing things, and there are things that we could be doing easily. Like I said, stopping commercial sales of cigarettes is the best way to do it. Um, I don't think that's happening right now. Enforcement of our very good laws would be a really important step. We are working on regulating flavors in e-cigarettes, which is really important. I'm glad to hear that. We need to be protecting people from tobacco smoke exposure. Now, and I wanted, uh, I, I'm, I I'm curious to hear your position, your position on e-cigarettes. So e-cigarettes, it's very interesting. And e-cigarettes did not start with tobacco companies. They started outside of the tobacco companies. They started with a pharmacist in China who watched his father die of lung cancer, realizing, realized that his father had died from the toxins from the smoke and, and he was addicted to the nicotine. And this guy made the first e-cigarette so that he could get the ticket, nicotine without getting the tar. Um, so he started it. It took off like wildfire because most of the cessation drugs that we have don't really work well for most people. Unfortunately, we keep giving it to them, but it doesn't really work for most of them. So they keep smoking and we want a way to get them to quit smoking. And the idea was maybe this would be helpful. And then there were these two guys from Stanford who were doing some master's project in their business school. And they created Juul, which was a new generation e-cigarette, which was hugely attractive to young people. And unfortunately, they went and they sold it to kids. They caused an epidemic in the United States of, of youth vaping, which is a terrible thing. Um, vaping is thought to be less harmful than tobacco, than, than smoking cigarettes, but you don't want a whole generation of kids doing it. That's a terrible thing. And they become addicted very easily. It is highly addictive. So yeah, we have a lot of kids vaping here and it's going up and we need to stop it. So now let's talk about the, um, education, public education, because your, your specialty is public health, um, the promotion of public health. And so who are your partners in the effort? The HMOs, I guess, the Kupot Cholim? So I work with a variety of people, including people in the Ministry of Health. I was part of the National Committee for the Reduction of, of Cigarette Smoking and Its Damages. That was under Leitzman and Roni Gamzu, and we put out a national plan. Um, so that was very interesting. Unfortunately, it needs to be updated and it needs to be implemented better. A lot of the elements were implemented, but again, as long as you're not enforcing, it's not good enough. Um, yes, some of my colleagues work with the Ministry of Education. I work less 
with the Ministry of Education. I did that in my doctorate, but I don't do that so much. But there's huge potential, and I have just started a new one-year program in health promotion, which is part of the, the Master's in Public Health here, a one-year program which will allow teachers on their sabbaticals to come to our school and learn public health for one year as opposed to for two years. They never had that. They didn't have enough time to do that. So I'm hoping it'll be very successful. I think we need we need a real base for changing the educational system, for instituting health promotion, healthy policy, and we hope to start creating that. Through now, our what, what's effective, based on your experience, what are the most effective tools to educate people on this? So you mentioned, you know, educating the educators, which is very, very important. Right. Um, so so what can so, be done that we're not doing? So there are, of course, this possibility of doing school programs, okay, which might have some limited effect. What I've seen in the literature is that school policy is more important than the actual educational programs. If you give them better food in the school, if you don't let them smoke any place around the school, which is part of the law but not always enforced, so the policy is sometimes even more important than the curriculum. But there's a world of things to be done within the educational system. It's an enormous system with enormous potential. You've got the students, you've got the kids, you've got the teachers, you've got the staff, and you have the parents. That's really quite a lot of our population. So I really think that's a great place to work. We need regulation. We need in secondhand smoke, which is really my this is the the area I've spent more time more time in this than anything else. Um, we know that it's nice to teach people things, but you need regulation. You need protection for the non-smoker from tobacco smoke exposure. What's in the court right now, the Supreme Court is hearing a case about tobacco smoke incursion into your home from your neighbor smoking. Now, you might think it's just a little disagreement between neighbors, except that I just did the research on this and it affects 4 million people in Israel, including 1.2 million children. We're talking about 10 million people altogether in the country, 40% of the people, and 2 million people are exposed at least weekly to smoke coming in from outside of their apartment into their apartment. Mostly this comes from neighbors smoking. Um, and neighbors don't believe that it's really getting, it's another thing we did, you know, do people really believe it can get to the neighbor? Of course it can get the to the neighbor because tobacco smoke travels nine meters easily in the open air without without wind. With wind, wind it can be worse. Um, but the, the people really think that if you and I or whatever we are, a meter apart, a meter, we're maybe two meters apart, right? Corona, two meters, tobacco smoke exposure, you need nine meters, 10 meters distance. So if they're smoking on the porch right next to their neighbor's porch, right under their neighbor's porch, it can go straight into their neighbor's house. Um, in the United States, federal public housing is entirely smoke-free because there was a, an Afro-American grandmother who had sole custody of her grandson and he was asthmatic. And he was in and out of emergency rooms all the time because of the neighbor smoking, which was triggering his asthma attacks. She took it all the way to the top and they banned smoking any place in federal public housing in the United States. Here, we don't have any regulation. We have laws which certainly could be applicable, but they're not enforced. There have been a few high profile court cases recently right. it's the, the in one this... i read i read about the one with the balcony in tel aviv oh, right? that's the yeah, one you're there's referring Ori to richter and the kid and his kids who were one of whom is asthmatic and the neighbor kept smoking refused to move one inch he won that case the issue is now in the supreme court 
six people who believe they were severely harmed by tobacco smoke incursion from their neighbors smoking, including a lawyer who, young, healthy guy who had a major heart attack. And the doctor said, what happened to you? How much do you smoke? How long have you been smoking for? He said, I never smoked a day in my life. My neighbor smokes on me all the time. So that's just one example. Like I said, people are getting harmed from this. Now, again, I'm interested in comparing Israel to the rest of the world. On this issue of secondhand smoking, which country would you uh, point to as a most advanced country? Well, I would say there's areas which are better and areas which are worse. But here in Israel, we have some elements which make it more likely that people are being exposed to tobacco smoke incursion. First of all, 75% of the people live in multi-unit buildings. If you're living in a private residence and you're 30, 50, 100, 200 meters away from everyone else, it's not going to bother you. But if you're living in a typical Israeli apartment, 75% of the people's, people do that, then you very likely have some neighbor who is smoking and it might be getting to you. Number two, we have a relatively high rate of smoking in states, like I said, 11.5%. We're 20.1% as, as per the last um, uh, minister's report on smoking. Um, and we have temperate weather, which means people go on their porches and they smoke on their porches and the wit door, you know, those porch doors are open and they go in and out. And unfortunately, because they don't understand that the smoke actually hurts the kids when they smoke next to them, they have their kids sitting on their laps and, while they're smoking because they think they're smoking and the kid's not exposed. Right. There's a right. lot that we need to be doing to denormalize smoking, uh, smoking around anybody, children, other adults, 10 meters away, not 30 centimeters, not half a meter, and not a meter away from your neighbor's nose. And uh, what's happening in a place like Japan, for example? Are Japan you familiar is, with Japan? Japan is a really interesting place. It is a very densely populated place also, right? Some places right. are. And, 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 and from my experience, I've been to Japan several times, and I everywhere I went, I saw people smoking. So in Japan, the government owns the tobacco industry. So the government wants the profits from the, not all of it, but a large share of it. So the government wants the profits from the tobacco industry. So it's much harder to regulate in a country where the government is making money from tobacco. And in our country, in Israel, you know, we get a lot of taxes from tobacco imported and sold here. So if somebody's thinking about short term, not long term, they're going to say, we want that money as opposed to thinking how much money we'll save on healthcare costs, how much we can extend healthy life. All those people who, seriously, they, they die when they're young and they could, now, they could who's, continue who's, working. Who's making those economic calculations for the government? Treasurer. No, all over, the, all about, over the world, all I'm over the world, the... all over the world, the treasurers are in are fighting with the ministries of health about tobacco control because the treasuries want money from the taxation and the ministries of health want health for the population. And they try. But, but I think that what you're saying, and I agree with you, of course, is that at the end of the day, it costs us a lot more, of not course. just on tobacco. What should we you know? We mentioned before we started the podcast, the damages of sugar. And so you have so many elements out there. So I understand the industry. There's a whole industry behind it. I understand the tax dimension of it because the government wants the tax money. But at the end of the day, if, you know, we end up paying more providing health care to these people, then what's the point? Yes. So first of all, there is, in tobacco at least, there's something called um, elasticity of price, meaning if, you, if you're putting on more taxes on something, then 
you're going to reduce use because that's a primary driver of reduced use because especially the poor people have more trouble paying for it and you get more taxes at the same time so it works out really well to increase the taxes on on tobacco the tobacco industry doesn't like that um regarding sugar it's a major problem we had we had managed to get really excellent laws and the government repealed them and we don't know what else is up ahead what else the government is going to do to harm public health in addition we're very concerned about that it's a very big issue because politics can really overturn a lot of good things that people have worked very hard for years to do now in terms of your specific research so you said that you're concentrating right now on the collateral damage of smoking uh, what's next for you in the future? What, what's your next move? So right now, this whole issue of tobacco smoke incursion from outside to into inside is a relatively new field. Till now, you know, it's sort of been off limits because it's the home. We don't want to get involved in the home. We're liberal democracies. We don't, we let people do what they want inside the home. But in the home, people are injured. And if you're being injured by somebody outside of your house, the smoke is coming into your house, that needs to be regulated. And really, at the population level, regulation is absolutely the right way to go. Because if it's regulated, then it changes the social norms and people realize that it's dangerous for the neighbors and it's dangerous for their own children. What's going to help for their own children is the same thing that's going to help the neighbors. And I am developing this field about neighbor smoking, tobacco smoking incursion, and what I've done all along is I've sort of straddled the line between policy and research, and I've put my research efforts into, into um, developing the evidence base so we know what works, what doesn't work, what do people think, where are the holes that we need to close up. So I am continuing to do this, and I am actually partnering with various people in, in other countries right now. Which, which countries? I'm just curious to know. So I have a close colleague who's at Harvard. So that's in Boston, United States. I have a close colleague who is in Scotland. They've done wonderful, wonderful work on tobacco control in Scotland. Also in England, by the way, where exposure of kids has gone down 90% in 20 years, partly because of their smoke-free policies and partly because they've been able to knock down smoking itself, which is super important. Um, so those are two of them. There are people in England that I want to work with also. And there are some other people in the United States that I've started being in touch with besides my, my colleague at Harvard. Well, you know, Professor Rosen, we could have this conversation going on for hours because it's so fascinating. Uh, but I really would like to thank you. This has been incredible, incredible 30 minutes of, of enriching, really, our lives about this topic. And thank you for all the great work that you do. And I know that our audience, uh, who are friends of the university, uh, we'll continue to follow your work from afar. Uh, tell us uh, if they would like to read more, where should sure. they go? Sure, sure, sure. Tell us. You can, you can look on the Tel Aviv University website. I have my profile. It's got publications. Um, you can always Google me, Google Scholar, and you are most welcome to you know, send me an email. I'm on the website of the universities in the School of Public Health. Send me an email. Happy to talk. If you want me to give talks to people, whatever, in other places, I'd be happy to do so. I am planning a sabbatical this coming year to build this this research area of tobacco smoke incursion. Um, so maybe... And, and you'll be where during your sabbatical? So I will be mostly here, but I plan to travel to Philadelphia and to Boston and to Sterling and also to Waterloo. Wonderful, wonderful. So again, thank you so much. Good luck with your you. next phase of your research. You. 
And from Tel Aviv, goodbye to our uh, listeners and our viewers until our next episode. This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat. <laughs>